Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We exist to become witnesses to God's new creation so that every man, woman, and child has a daily encounter with Jesus. We believe that as a family of servant missionaries, we are empowered to participate in God's story because of the good news that King Jesus is making all things new. When Jesus calls Matthew the tax collector to follow him, local religious leaders can hardly believe it. It's then that he reminds them that the God of Israel desires mercy, not sacrifice. But how much are we like the Pharisees? Matthew chapter 9, as you're turning there, I want to ask this question that you may not have the answer to right away, but it's a question that you should be regularly asking yourself is this, where do you look for justification and for proof that you are truly okay with yourself? I was talking with Nate this week. He was traveling and going to be traveling on his own, and sometimes I do some traveling on my own, and I have all kinds of free time. And you know what I hate is traveling by myself in a city I don't know with no one there. You know why? Because I have to just be with me, and it's terrible. Like just being alone by yourself with no one around, nothing to do, you think to yourself it's so amazing, and for 33 minutes it is. Then the next 23 and a half hours, you're like, what do I do with myself? Because we hate to be alone. We know there's something deep down inside of us that is not right. That is something we have to attach ourselves to to give us meaning and significance. And we would just call that in the Bible, this is your righteousness. This is what you give yourself to, you attach yourself to, for significance in your life. And we do that as a country, as a people around the world with all different types of things. Some people attach themselves to a political party. Some people attach themselves to a sports team. Some people attach themselves to their hobby. Some people attach themselves to relationships. But whatever it is, you are looking for righteousness. You are looking for something to gravitate to, to give yourself meaning, significance, and purpose. And this morning, Jesus has a lot to say about this in the context of calling Matthew. Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 9, Jesus says this, And Jesus went on from there, and he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This morning I want to look at how Matthew uses his own calling as a context, as a means for Jesus to teach a very important lesson to his disciples and to the Pharisees. That all deals with righteousness. So, Father, help us as we pray this morning. We come to you. Spirit, speak to us through your words. 
I pray that when we leave here this morning, we would not just be hearers of your word, but we'd be doers, that we would actually feel the conviction and the encouragement and the exhortation, whatever it is that the Spirit has for us this morning, that we would listen to that. So help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew is the one who wrote this book, and now he's talking about his entrance into the story. And part of his story is that he was a tax collector. Now, tax collectors have never been popular in any culture. But in first century Palestine, they were, in, a, in, in our context, a particularly unpopular type of people. Partly because, number one, they gathered taxes for the Romans. So if you knew anything about the Jewish life in first century Palestine, is that Jewish people were constantly fighting for their own land. They wanted to get rid of all of the invaders, all of the outsiders. They hated the Romans. And tax collectors were Jewish people who actually worked for the bad guys. So if you were a Jew and worked for a bad guy, you were looked down upon. But secondly, it's not just because they were Jewish people who worked for the bad guys, but secondly, they tended to be very extortionate. What we mean by that is that they would exact the taxes from the people to give to the Roman leaders, but they would also tax the people more than what the Roman leaders needed so that they could have their own money. And so consequently, these tax collectors not only were the bad guys, the traitors, but they were the ones who were swindling and taking more money from them. They were oftentimes, as we'll see, very rich. In fact, the Bible, Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 5, it says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? So what is Jesus saying? If you love people who love you, you know, like high five, congratulations, you're awesome. Everyone does that. You know who does that? Even the tax collectors do that. That's what Jesus says. That's how low on the bar that these people were in their society. They were the outcasts of outcasts. They were the ones who were marginalized and pushed and looked at as the worst of the worst. This is Matthew, and Jesus says, follow me. Okay, now, (laughs) what would you do if the worst person you knew became a Christian? Would you have a little skepticism? I think this is the point, that Jesus is calling to himself all sorts of people. He didn't just call the people who looked good, who had the nice haircuts, who wore the, you know, the long dresses. He called to himself all kinds of different people, including now the worst of the worst in the society. And when Matthew left, and it says he followed him, I want you to know that Luke tells us he left everything. He left a whole way of life to follow Jesus. He gave up his tax collecting business. He gave up what made him so rich. Now, probably what was happening is Matthew is working in that, if you remember from last week, if you had the map up in the northern part of Israel in the Sea of Galilee, Matthew is probably well known and a leading tax collector up there, and he'd probably heard of all the things Jesus was doing. And he'd heard about all the things that Jesus was doing from all the people. So when Jesus came and said, follow him, it wasn't the first time that he probably heard or seen of Jesus. And so he left everything, left his lifestyle, left his uh, source of income. And he walked out of that tax collecting booth, if you will, to follow Jesus. And he gave up everything. This is Matthew. This is what it means to follow Jesus. 
But Matthew, in his own book here, does not record all of his great things that he left. What he does is he, number one, the first thing he does after he resigns is he throws a retirement party. Okay? This is what I'm calling it. He called it a retirement party. Why do I call it that? Because it says that they had a party at Matthew's house. And who was the people who were invited to the party? The tax collectors and sinners. Why were they the ones invited? They were the only ones who would come. They were the ones who Matthew were friends with. So Matthew was like saying, guys, I'm leaving behind my tax collecting ways, and now I'm going to follow this man. And he's here, and I want to just throw a big party. Matthew probably had a very big house, very wealthy, and in this party was, in a sense, invited for anyone who wanted to come in, basically based on the first century hospitality rules. Anyone could come into this party. But the guest list was not the people that the religious elite looked up on. The local elites were not invited. The rabbis, the teachers, the Pharisees, these are the people who did not come to this retirement party. And for Jesus and his disciples to eat with these tax collectors and sinners. And I want us to think, when we think of sinners, again, I want us to think of like prostitutes and pimps and thieves and all of the outcasts, all the people we'd be like, keep my kids away from. I don't want my kids anywhere near any of these people. They're the worst of the worst, all having a big party. And Jesus goes into the house, and what he does by eating with these people is merely grace, and yet very scandalous to the culture, to the society. Because the, Sag- sorry, the Pharisees, for them it meant that Jesus was accepting these tax collectors, and identifying with them and the sinners. And yet, this is what characterized Jesus' ministry. You know that in Matthew chapter 11, we'll get there in a few years, Matthew records this, that Jesus was a drunkard and a glutton. This is what they called Jesus. Why do you think they called Jesus a drunkard and a glutton? Because he hung out with drunkards and gluttons. He was a friend to the sinners. And so the criticism by the Pharisees was natural. And they wanted nothing to do with them because in doing so, they'd become, in their mind, unclean. And they'd be violating the Torah. And they'd be dealing with people who didn't follow the law and didn't care about the law and were actually traitors to Yahweh himself in their minds. The Pharisees, who are not at this banquet, were very scrupulous in their eating habits. Not in just what food they ate, but with whom they ate. So yes, they couldn't have baby back ribs, and they couldn't have bacon. They had terrible breakfasts, and they had nothing to do with those unclean food laws. But it wasn't just the food, it was who they ate with. To invite someone to your table was to accept that person, to receive that person, to share a table with someone was more than it is today. It's to actually open your life and your home to these people. So the Jewish people ensured that who they ate with were people who did not go against the law. They shared their table with only people who shared their way of life. Who do you share your table with? The people who only do your way of life? Or is your table open to people who are very different than you? 
See, they thought by bringing them to their table that their sin would contaminate them. If your kids hang out with kids who smoke, your kids are going to smoke, right? Like, that's the reality. We're afraid of that. And, and we want wisdom, okay? Like, don't hear me saying just throw your kids into the lion's den and let them die. Okay, I'm not saying that. But does, are we people who actually open our table to people who are very different than us. But for Jesus to eat with these tax collectors and these sinners, the Pharisees could not understand it. They saw Jesus to be claiming to be this religious teacher and had heard stories about his healings and his exorcisms and about his great teachings, and they wondered how in the world could this man, and it wasn't merely an interrogative, like they weren't just questioning, Jesus, why are you doing that? It's more of an accusatory. Like there's two different types of questions of why. Does that make sense? You can ask God, why did you do that? Like, can you please just let me know what's going on here? Or you can ask God in an accusatory way, why? And this is far more in that accusing these Pharisees, accusing Jesus of associating with irreligious people. So Matthew just throws his retirement party, and he tells us about this retirement party to set the context again between what we're going to see, as we saw last week, the beginning of the conflict between the religious elites and Jesus will continue to grow until we come to the cross. And Jesus, probably after the party was over, knew about these people who were talking about him and talking about him eating with these tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus says three things to the Pharisees regarding his association with tax collectors and sinners. The first thing he says is this, it is not the healthy who need the doctor, but the sick. Okay, now, at this point, we'd be like, Jesus, thank you. Captain Obvious, right? Who goes to the doctor? Sick people. Who do doctors help? Sick people. And so this saying, in a sense, is kind of obvious, but it's also a common, uh, uh, like a common idiom, a common proverb in the ancient world, built on the obvious facts that doctors help sick people. But Jesus here is not talking about physical health. He's talking about a spiritual sickness. In Jesus' illustration here, the strong, the healthy are the Pharisees, and the weak and the sick are the tax collectors and sinners. He is not saying that these leaders, the religious elite here, the Pharisees, and he's not saying that they're healthy. Rather, he says, I have not come for those who believe they are healthy, but for those who know they are sick. See, here's one division between a Christian and a Pharisee. Do you really believe that you're okay, or do you know that you are really sick? This is the difference. Do you perceive yourself as someone who can actually take care of themselves, who doesn't need Jesus, who can actually say, yeah, I know he's that, but I'm going to build my own life on this. And don't be fooled, there'll be many who say in the last day, Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we do all these amazing things? And Jesus will say what? Depart from me, I never knew you. But there were people who claimed to go on mission trips, and people who came to church services, and people who went to small group meetings. But they didn't really believe that they were sick. 
They thought they were okay. They thought they could deal with it. They thought they needed Jesus just to help them get over that little step, that Jesus became the stepping stone to what they want. This is the problem a lot of American Christianity is that Jesus becomes, as, 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 as the monkeys would say, I'm not your stepping stone. Jesus is not your stepping stone to success. Jesus is not your, only the people over 50 got that reference, right? Like, who are the monkeys, right? Okay, yeah, a couple of you, all right? Like, the point is, is that Jesus is not going to become a means to an end for you. If Jesus is a means to an end, you don't perceive yourself to be sick. You perceive yourself to be healthy. And Jesus is identifying these two groups of people. And I would ask the question, which group do you find yourself to be in? Now, the religious elite here, Jesus gives some homework to them. I love this. Jesus says, go and learn. He gives them a homework assignment to the Pharisees. Go to your textbook, which was what? The Old Testaments. And not to like, make you feel bad, but the Pharisees could quote the first five books of the Bible to you. Can any of you get past Genesis 1-1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then we're like, ah, uh, sun, moon, stars, right? Like, we don't know. But they could quote to you basically the first five books of the Bible. And Jesus says, here's your homework. Go and figure out what this phrase means. And the phrase is a quote from the Old Testament that they'd be very familiar with from the book of Hosea, chapter 6, verse 6, that says this, for I desire mercy not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offering. See, the Pharisees had it all backwards. Their priorities were all out of whack. They built their lives on the wrong things. They built their lives on good things that ultimately came bad things. They built their lives on conformity to the law, ensuring that they would not break any of them. See, there were these 613 laws that Israel is to live by that governed their way of life. But then there was what we called oral laws, like laws that were passed down from generation to generation. And what ended up happening with the Pharisees is that they built fences around the law. What I mean by that is, like, let's just, you know, here's a really absurd one. The Bible says don't steal. Okay? So where would you steal something? The store. So the law would be don't go into the store. Because if you go into the store, then you'll be tempted to what? Steal. So don't go to the store. Like this is the idea. They built so many laws around that you'd actually have to break five of their oral laws to actually break God's law. You with me on that? And this is, I mean, are Christians any different today? Don't go to movie theaters. Why? Because that's where bad people hang out. And you'll watch bad movies. And so to ensure that we're nothing like the world and ensure that nothing is going to bad happen to us ever, we're just going to stay away from the movie theaters. Okay? Rather than just saying, you know what? I can go to the movie theater and actually watch some movies that are actually profitable, like Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter and the good ones. But the reality is, is this is what's happening. They built law after law after law, and they built their lives on these. They built their lives on the Bible. They knew theology. They discussed theological matters. And it's interesting, God, the Bible, and obedience were all essential to these people's lives. 
And I think this should be a very strong warning to us, that building your lives on God, the Bible, and obedience, as important as these things are, are no guarantee that you're a true disciple. At the end of the day, the Pharisees built their lives not on these things, but on themselves. They built their lives, their identity, on themselves. Their righteousness came from how much they knew. Their righteousness came from how much they obeyed. And their righteousness came from how much dedication and commitment they showed to sacrifice day after day after day. And at the end of the day, they were their own saviors. They saved themselves by how much they knew. They saved themselves by how much they obeyed. They, they saved themselves by how much commitment and dedication they showed. Everything at the end of the day was they didn't need Jesus. They could do it without him, which is why they rejected him. Their worth as people became centered on their accomplishments, their hard work, their dedication, their commitment to never compromise to any of the commands of God. And these are the people that Jesus has words for. And as Christians, it's so easy to allow our identity to shift from Jesus to Jesus-like things. It is so easy to find our identity in our own viewpoints, our own political beliefs, our own obedience, our own theological structures. And our identity can shift in a moment. How do you know if you're like a Pharisee? How do you know if you're your own Savior? How do you know if you're a self-righteous person? Let me give you three test cases. You ready? Here's number one. Question one. Are you a self-righteous person? And the first question to identify whether or not you're a self-righteous person is this. Are you alive? Then you're self-righteous. Okay? And I'm not trying to be mean to any of you. But this is what it means to be a human. This is what sin does to each of us, is that we each seek to build our own righteousness, to build our own lives on something, to say that we did something, that we mean something. And so we are all prone to self-righteousness. We as humans all build our lives on something, all seeking a righteousness through our own efforts. So let's just start here. Okay, how many of us are self-righteous jerks? Let's all raise our hands. Okay, that is us. And if you don't like that, I'm sorry, but that's reality. And if you can just admit it, you're far better off than people who can't. Number two... More pointedly, how do I know if I'm self-righteous? Ask yourself this question. What makes you get critical and defensive? What makes you become a critical person? And what makes you get defensive? Because critical and defensive spirits are just hidden masks of self-righteousness. Let's talk about having a critical spirit. Now, when I say critical I, I get this every time I say this. People come to me like, you're telling me I can't judge and critique other people's viewpoints? Yes, you can critique and judge other people's viewpoints. We don't just have to be embracing of everything. But when I talk about a critical spirit, it is when someone who you disagree with, you look down on them for their belief. You elevate yourself over those people because they believe, I, I can't believe they're amillennialists, those people. 
I, if you don't know what that means, you're blessed and we'll talk later. Okay, but I mean like the point is, is like we look down on other people because they don't have the same thing we do. Is it wrong to judge other people in a sense? No. Jesus says don't judge unless you what? Be judged. The point is, is that if you, the way you judge others is how you're going to be judged. How do you want God to judge you? Very harshly or very nicely and gracefully? Gracely? How about, you like that word? Graciously. Okay, like the point is, is that we want God to judge us graciously. And what God is, Matthew is telling us in Jesus in Matthew 7, is you judge. But you understand you're going to be judged with that same type of judgment that you give to others. And so the point is, is not that you can't critique other people's viewpoints. But you do it out of love. Or you become so critical of other people that you become up here and they go down there. You're actually attacking people. <clears throat> a defensive spirit. A defensive spirit is the opposite of critical. Critical is you look down on other people. A defensive spirit is when someone attacks you. And it makes you get all bent out of shape. A person with a defensive spirit is, is excessively concerned with guarding against the real or imagined threat of criticism. That your ego is going to be injured. Or your shortcomings are going to be exposed. See, we get defensive a lot, don't we? If you're married, you probably become defensive every single day of your life. Your spouse says something, and you just interpret it one way. She may have meant it that way. She may have meant it another way, but it doesn't matter. She just said it, and you immediately put walls up. And you get very defensive. Why? Because they're attacking your way of life. They're attacking your righteousness. And you don't like it when people attack your righteousness. You don't like it when people begin to go against what you are and what you think you are. And this is just in relationships. Let alone belief systems and ideologies and all the philosophical structures that are out there. That if people come and attack you and believe again, or attack what you believe, what you build your life on, you become very defensive. And so, how do you know if you're self righteous? You're a human. Number two, you become very critical and defensive. And I would just ask you to start watching what you become critical and defensive about, and you will see immediately what you build your life on. And then number three, Jesus provides a test case scenario. He says this in the homework assignment. Go learn what mercy means. Go learn that what he says is, I desire mercy not sacrifice. Ask yourself the following question. Am I merciful to others, especially those who are different than me? Mercy. Do you laugh at people who fall off bikes? Some of you did yesterday. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, that's okay. But if your own kid fell off the bike, are you laughing at that? No, why? Because you don't have a merciful spirit. You are laughing at someone who fell off a bike. But if it was your own kid, you wouldn't be laughing. Mercy is not just 
merciful to people who are like you and that you love, even who do that? Tax collectors do that. Jesus says genuine mercy is to show mercy to people who are actually far different than you. I mean, just think of Jesus in this scenario. He is the Son of Man, the perfect Son of God, who has all claim to all authority and all obedience, and he decides to hang out with who? The sinners, the tax collectors. And Jesus does this as a test case for the Pharisees and his disciples to say, go learn what mercy means. In the Old Testament, the book of Hosea, God is indicting the nation of Israel because even though they were outwardly conforming to the sacrifice and doing all the rituals and obeying all the laws, their hearts and the way they treat each other is far from what He wants. Matthew chapter 23, verse 23, Jesus says this, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, which are what? Truth? No. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. And notice, you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. Is Jesus saying, forget about all the rest of the stuff? No, he's saying there are actually more important things than other things. Not everything can be a 10 out of 10 in Christianity. If you're going to fight over everything in Christianity, you're going to have a very hard, long life. And you don't understand that there are more important matters than other important matters. Why is mercy so important? Because how you relate is how you relate. It reveals the way that you view God. How you relate to God and His mercy is the way that you show that to other people. So that if you don't show mercy to other people, you really don't understand the mercy of God over your life. Because they go together. How you relate to God is how you relate to other people. In your relationships with mercy with other people, if you find that you are never showing mercy to people who are particularly far different than you, you don't understand how far different you are than Jesus. And yet, what did he do? With as far different as you were, when you fell off the bike, he didn't laugh. He came and picked you up and cared for you and put you back on the bike and put his hand on the back so that when you ran or ran, rode the bike, you didn't fall again. Mercy's hard for you to find in your heart and life. You have a hard time understanding the free mercy that God has given you. Jesus says, number one, I didn't come for the healthy, I came for the sick. Number two, go do some homework and find out what mercy means. Then he says, number three, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. See, the Pharisees had it all right, but they got it all wrong. And I don't want to be a people who get it all right, but get it all wrong. We have a righteousness that is free. You did not earn it. You cannot earn it. It is freely given and freely received. You have all the righteousness that you could ever need, that you could ever attain, that you could ever want in Jesus, and it's free, and it's everything you need, and you just reach out and you grab it. 
And He will never let you go. He will never let you down. He will never lose you. And when your trust in His righteousness that is freely given to you, is that it becomes your identity and that becomes what you build your life on, your need to attack other people will not be there. You won't have to critique other people. You can evaluate everything by Scripture. You can evaluate everything by what the Bible says, absolutely. But you won't have to build yourself up better than other people because you believe a certain thing. Your identity is Jesus, not what you believe. When your trust is in Jesus, you'll be far less quick to attack others, look down on others, because you'll see that we are all equally sinful, broken, and flawed. And when you trust in His righteousness for you, you will not need to get defensive, because your life is not built on whether or not you're a good person or whether or not your spouse thinks that you've done this a thousand times. Your life is built on the blood and the righteousness of Jesus. Your defensiveness washes away. Because you know what? Charles Spurgeon says this. If, if a man looks down on you for a certain reason and you get really mad at him, don't get mad at him. Because you're far worse than he could ever imagine you to be. Like if someone yells at you and they get really mad at you, they're like, that's okay. You don't even know the half of who I am. I'm far worse than you could ever believe. And when you believe that defensiveness just slips away. Jesus didn't come to call the righteous, but he called sinners, people who knew they were broken, who knew that if they continued to build their righteousness on good things, but not Jesus, they would never inherit the life that is to come, the resurrection of the dead on the new world. Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Podcast. To learn more about our kingdom ministry located in Chesapeake, Virginia, visit weareredemption.org.